Well, hey there, you Zen Tri rock stars and wizards. This is a really special episode, one of the peak best episodes that I put out in a year. I go out like a total nut job freak show and go do a self-supported Ultraman. This is crazy. This episode is all about part one of that, and also it is co-hosted by pro triathlete John Hirsch. It's a really special episode. Very excited to bring it to you, but before we get started, I wanted to go ahead and give a shout out to a couple of sponsors. So Sound Probiotics, when they found out I was going to do this, they wanted to be the title sponsor (laughs) of this, and I am super happy to do so. When I was a kid growing up, My mom always said that my brother and I are as healthy as a horse, was the phrase that she used. And sound probiotics are little tiny pills made out of little tiny horses, super healthy horses that you eat. No, I'm just kidding. They are made out of the healthy bacteria, and 80% of your immune system comes from the bacteria in your gut. Did you know that? Isn't that amazing? So if you eat healthy stuff, you will end up being more healthy and fighting off getting sick. And I hardly ever get sick. And I definitely have not been sick since I started taking sound probiotics. So I'm excited to bring them to you 10% off at soundprobiotics.com with discount code ZENTRY. Check them out. And then also, we've got a new sponsor on board, livingfuel.com. And they, uh, they sent me some stuff Let's see, it was bars and drink mixes, you know, like green green uh, smoothie kind of mix and a raspberry one, and then also like some snack packs with chia seeds. And my family and I, not just me, not just the uh, triathlete nut job, but the, uh, the entire family blew through that stuff so fast. <laughs> it was crazy. And they, uh, they followed up just uh, about a week or two ago, and they said, uh, hey, did you like the stuff? Are you still interested? And I said, heck yeah, and they are on board. So you can check them out at livingfuel.com. They have drink mixes, snack bars, and all kinds of really good stuff. The, uh, the family that puts it together, the uh, wife uh, was getting really depressed, and the husband decided to help fix her with food. And that's how it all got started. And I definitely can appreciate that. My life turned around. Everybody's life turns around if they start eating correctly, if they haven't been eating right. So go check them out, livingfuel.com. All right, let's go ahead and get started with the show. Uh, John's calling in on a regular phone. And uh, the sound quality at first is a little rough, but it does smooth out pretty quickly. And you will definitely enjoy it. All right, let's go. You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Hey there, all you tri-freaks and geeks. This is... What is up? It's John Hirsch, and I have taken over... Zen in the other triathlon. It is a full-scale invasion. It will be the least Zen thing you do all day. All kidding aside, I am here to take over Zen in the other triathlon for one day only to bring you, interestingly, more Zen in the other triathlon than you could ever possibly imagine with my special guest, Brett the Man Blankner. What's up? What is up? What's up, dude? What's up, Spartan Beast Master? Ah, <laughs> uh, welcome to my podcast. 
I like, I like how you, I like your chair. It's comfy. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the Zentri Studios, dude. How you doing? Yeah. Oh, uh, it's great. I've been over. I fly in my flag. I got, you know, I like, I like sitting in the big chair, my man. <laughs> you look great. <laughs> I, <laughs> all kidding aside, I am uh, really psyched to interview you. I heard what you were doing with Iron Baby, uh, Ultra Baby, and Ultra I was a Baby. big fan of Iron Baby. Yeah. And I thought yeah. to myself, man, I really want to do a podcast to interview you. And mm. then I thought, you know, what's more uh, appropriate than just taking over your podcast? Yeah. I mean, that's the easiest way to do it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, you know, I was going to form uh, a country once, but I thought it would just be easier to take over another one. That's right. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. You guys just stay there. Just now I'm in charge. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, let's see. If this was my podcast taking over your podcast, I would start with the news. That's right. Let's talk about two. There's two different things. There's Kona and uh-huh. there's your Spartan Beast that you did. Well, we'll talk about that some other time. Well, I just want to let everybody know you won the Masters Division of Spartan Beast, which makes you a Beast Master. That is true. Actually, I won the Ultra Beast. Be ultra Beast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just to be clear, there's actually a there's, Beast in Ultra Beast. Yeah, I there's won a the big difference. Ultra, yeah. And I was, I was fourth overall. Yeah. I was actually winning for quite a while before I wasn't, which is was kind of sad. What, but, what do you think <laughs> happened to take you out of the lead? Did you run out of fuel or just get... No, oh, hypothermia. Hypothermia. Yeah, here's a. If you're not used to racing up and down mountains, here's a here's a novice tip for you. Um, when you look at the weather forecast, that's the bottom of the mountain. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, it turns out turns out that uh, the t- that uh, the top of uh, Squaw Valley mm-hmm. at like ten thousand feet is a lot different than the bottom at five thousand. Yeah, much different. Or six thousand or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. At the bottom, it was lovely. It was like fifty-five and overcast. At the top, it was like. 35 and blowing so strong that the course was falling apart. Yeah. So anyways, um, but yeah, good day. Good, good times. I like how you sent that picture to me with Lake Tahoe and you go, I can't believe you swam across that. <laughs> oh, we, we couldn't believe it. So that was also my, uh, my honeymoon. And we were talking, I was sitting yeah. on the dock and, uh, and I, and we're sitting there and Christine's like, Oh, this lake is enormous. And I'm like, you know, Brett and, uh, Morgan Morgan and Jamie. swam across this. Yeah. Right. And then she's like, wait a minute from where? I'm like, no, 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 the far side. She like, starts looking left and right. I'm like, yeah. no, 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 north, south. Like from where we're sitting to that mountain, we can't really make out 20-something yeah, miles away. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are crazy. That was awesome. That's so, insane. Let's talk about Hawaii. You ready? I am. I am. Did you get to follow the race? Because you were, you were out doing Ultra Baby. Yeah. So what was, what was cool was coming in um, the Ultra Baby day two bike ride which is a bike all day mm-hmm. was the same day as Kona. And actually it gave me a little bit of a distraction to come in every hour and 15 minutes to the aid station or so. Sure. I was doing loops on the bike and ask how Kona was going. Although it didn't start until noon here. So um, that was kind of neat though. Yeah. So. I, I, I have to say, and, and people who've heard me on this podcast know that I have some real criticism of the WTC, mm-hmm. but Anytime you, but Kona is just amazing. And, you know, even I would argue, despite the WTC, it's still, it's just a pinnacle of sport. And so there's a lot to talk about in terms of the race. Um, obviously, for people who, who weren't paying super close attention, you have Jan uh, Ferdino from Germany winning in a not blistering time, uh, only the eighth fastest time ever posted there in 
814 and Daniela, Daniela, how do you print Reif? Reef, oh, I think, right. is the way people say it. How do they pronounce it? Reef. Reef. Uh, winning on the women's side, uh, breaking nine hours in 857.57. Nice symmetrical time there. But I thought that the, uh, the race was interesting because I think this is the first time in history that an ITU slash Olympian came across with a true pedigree as a, an Olympic uh, gold medalist and set the uh, and set the uh, pace for the day. And mm-hmm. I think that that's going to I think that's a real indicator that this is this is a benchmark moment in our sport. This is the first time that the ITU guys are showing that they can not that they can dominate um, the iron distance race. And this is something Brett Sutton, for example, has been talking about for some time that these guys are going to come across and uh, change the game. And I think we might be seeing the very, very beginning of that. What do you think, my guest? Um, yeah, as a guest on your show, I have an opinion on this. So the uh, definitely the racing has gotten well-rounded because these it used to be that you could just be an awesome cyclist and kind of fake it through the swim or the run or be a pretty good cyclist and an awesome runner. And um, the like Jan... And the other IT folks that are coming through, like Tim Don, right, mm-hmm. and Daniela, um, are um, all around incredible, and uh, just showing up to triathlons and not really having a background, and hoping that someday you might be at the top of the pack, seems to be disappearing. It seems like you need to grow up racing, <laughs> starting at age like twelve or something like that. And well, just completely well-rounded. Yeah, I think I think too. Coming off of the recent domination by the uh, Alisters, who grew up as triathletes, not crossover athletes, we're yeah. seeing that as well in in the Olympic distance, right? So this is the iron distance because of how long it is, tends to have a, a longer maturity level. So it's coming around later. Mm-hmm. But I agree. I think that's a, a big big uh, shift in the paradigm of Ironman racing. The other thing I would point out is kind of to piggyback on the, on your point, the swim now matters, right? I mean, Jan mm-hmm. came out in the first pack. Andy Potts came out uh, with him. There's only three of them. And they went first and fourth. Uh, the days of being able to kind of have a weakness seemed to be evaporating. You know, in 2005, Ferris Alsultan, mm-hmm. his margin of error was basically the swim as well. And then, uh, but, but, you know, since 2005, you've definitely seen people get away with not being quite the – a, you know, top tier swimmers. And I don't think that's going to be the case anymore. I mean, one of the defending champ, uh, Sebastian, uh, he struggled, uh, in the swim and it was a meaningful, a meaningful loss for him. I mean, I think that he went backwards for the rest of the day in part because of that, cause he spent the whole day yeah. chasing. Yeah. And I think the, uh, the top 10 at Kona, the potential top 10 are, are so competitive that, um, you really don't know who's going to win race day i think the days of somebody winning year after year after year are gone Mm. that uh the past few years in the men's race it's just uh somebody's having a slightly off day which could happen statistically to anybody Mm -hmm. um there are too many people that are incredible that are just waiting to eat your lunch if you don't perform flawlessly I, I do, I do agree with that, and you know, and the race itself, even before you add the stiffness of competition, I think you 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 saw that it was already hard to repeat because Ironman, there's so many things that can go wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. you see it on the women's side, right? I mean, our defending champ wasn't there. Yeah. Brenda Caffrey had to pull out because of a you know back uh, injury that 
you know, she sustained in the weeks, the week training before. I mean, a, a meaningless throwaway workout that was just meant to get her loose actually ended up ruining her chances to defend. Yeah. So it, it's a, and with the competition being the way it is, I, I tend to agree. I think that the sport is, uh, has become a real crapshoot. The other thing I would add is that these guys are all taking chances. None of these people are able to race their, you know, kind of B plan or their B plus kind of plan. They're all racing their A race plan, which is to say there is no margin for error. The chances of, you know, the, and so they're all pushing limits, they're all taking risks. And you see a lot, you know what's fascinating is don't look at the names in the top 10, look at the names in, that aren't in the top 10. You see incredibly talented athletes who are nowhere near there. Right. You know, Mary Beth Ellis, uh, she was off. Uh, Jordan Rapp, he's not around. Uh, you know, the Hoff, not in the mm -hmm. top 10. Um, really fantastic athletes who did not make it into the top 10 um, because they rolled the dice and, you know, came up snake eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And also, it, this year's race had an incredibly high DNF rate and on both the men's and the women's side. And I think that has a lot to do with um, people like to believe that women play the sport, most sports more conservatively and safely, but actually um, a lot of studies have shown that women put in the same situations as guys will be just as risky and uh, aggressive. Mm. Um, just like watch women's soccer <laughs> 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 and see how crazy that gets, you know? And um, so I think now we're seeing the women I think the women DNF rate was higher than the men's. I, I, I'm not sure about that, but it's close. Mm. Uh, and you know, you DNF when you overreach because you're trying you're you're trying to um, make a move that's risky. Sure. And I mean, then you blow up. Spots five through ten are all separated by less than seven minutes yeah. to give you a sense of how tight that is. Right over the course of a you know, Heather Jackson was fifth place, top American in nine twenty one. And your um, and 10th place was 928. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, that's, that's nearly a sprint finish for those final five spots. And keep in mind that those final five spots really matter, I think, for the Kona Point ranking. So you're talking about incredibly tight racing, uh, incredible uh, people having to take incredible risks to get themselves into those, uh, those final top 10 spots. And I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's really compelling racing when you watch it live, you know, yeah. for those who, who had the feed going. Yeah, and um, they had live tracking on uh, a lot of the athletes, uh, I mean the pros, uh, mm -hmm. with GPS, which I heard was fantastic. Uh, Tim Don accidentally dropped his in a porta can <laughs> in the transition, <laughs> so he lost his. But uh, Oh, and yeah, Heather Jackson was new on the scene as a pro. I've heard she raced it as an uh, amateur, yeah. um, but that was really cool to see. She was top female American? Yep, fifth overall. Yeah, that's pretty cool. 21, uh, 45. With a with a honestly, frankly, not great swim of a 104. So to give you a sense, I mean, her her uh, everybody ahead of her swam a low 56. They looked like they were in the same group, uh, and so that's eight minutes she's giving away. That's quite meaningful, you know. So that's amazing. It just goes to show how uh, how prime she is for this for this sport because she'll get those eight minutes. I mean, she'll she'll improve that. Yeah, and then on the swim, we heard all this uh, drama afterwards where uh, people were saying that Lionel Sanders uh, was drafting off of Matt Chabro, I guess is how you say it. Okay. I actually missed this whole controversy, so why don't you break it down for well, me? Well, it turns out it's true. Okay. Um, the, his coach, I forgot his name, 
uh, Lionel Sanders coach asked uh, Riccatello, I think is the uh, head USAT ref, if, if, it, well. if, <laughs> if, uh, if it was okay for um, Lionel Sanders to uh-huh. drag, because Lionel Sanders has a notoriously bad swim mm-hmm. uh, compared to his bike and run, and uh, to draft after Chabro, because Chabro just did, I don't know, Chattanooga or something, some race, right. and wasn't um, in his wasn't going to, was going to go to Kona to race to be there, but really wasn't his a race. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and Riccatello supposedly said, uh, yeah, I guess that's okay. But then when it comes down to it, uh, during the swim, people said they saw Shabro swimming and turning around backwards and making sure Lionel Sanders was behind them and stuff. And then the social contract, whether it's legal or not, was people, people were pissed. Like, you're drafting. It's it's okay to draft and to swim, but it's not okay for a pro to completely sacrifice sacrifice his race and be like a domestique ah, for think. another pro um, ah. because that's a really unfair advantage towards other pros. And um, there's a huge discussion on slow twitch on whether it's um, right or not. That mm-hmm. uh, whether whether it's illegal or not, or I don't know if it's illegal, breaking the rules or not, um, or whether it's right or not, and man, it's complicated. And then trying, and especially because supposedly a ref said it was okay before the race, and then Lionel Sanders came out and said that yeah, that's what they did, and he regrets it now because it seems looking back on it, it seems kind of scummy or whatever to do that. And then also he thinks it didn't even make him faster anyway. <laughs> said it made him slower. Because yeah. if he swam a 101, then he said in training he's been able to swim faster than that, and uh, and so he would just wish the whole thing was just never done it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think that uh, Riccatello is right. He it's it's legal. You know, I don't think anybody went to to Jimmy and said, by the way, is this uh, is this ethical? Yeah. You know, that's a whole nother. That's a whole nother. That is a whole nother issue, right? I mean, yeah. There are yeah. a lot of there are a lot of things that are legal. There are very few, you know, that are not necessarily ethical. But so. in, the, in the language of the rules, it says one racer cannot subordinate his race goals to help another racer. Hmm. So it is not legal, but also at the same time, well, what's your race goals? Well, here's the other thing too, right? <laughs> Actually, I'm just, as a lawyer, right? If I read that, I would say that the guy who was acting as the domestique then broke the rules and Sanders didn't. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of a stupid way to make the rule because um, if the guy's already sacrificing his race, he's already sacrificed his race and subsequently probably cares very little. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. I mean, that, this has been an ongoing uh, issue in ITU. Not issue, actually. Almost like discussion. Whether or not you know, team tactics are appropriate and whether or not they're, uh, you know, and how to best implement them. Right. I remember Simon Whitfield had a domestique in one of the Olympic, his Olympic bids, you know, a person who swam with him and then helped him bridge the gap back up to the, you know, whose, whose goal was to help him bridge the gap back up to the bike, so, bike uh, group so that he could then unleash his, you know, strength, which was the run. Right. But, yeah. you know, in, in ITU, there was a sense that maybe that's actually legit, right? Yeah, because they're already drafting on the bike anyway. Yeah, and it is our, it's, a, it's more of a quasi-team sport, whereas... I think there's a real sense that Ironman, it's truly meant to be individual. Right. In every right. sense. So I can see why people are bent. That's right. That's right. Huh. So a little bit of controversy at Ironman. Interesting. Although, interestingly, <laughs> he also didn't, Sanders didn't crack the top 10. That's crazy, too, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so all of, all of that, and it like, turns out it doesn't 
probably matter that much. Right. Right. Or, you know, I don't know. It, it certainly didn't affect the payout or the Kona point series starting for 2017. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. So, um, was there a second news item that you thought was significant? No, that's pretty much it. I think, I think anytime Kona happens, it's got to be the single number one news item to yes. discuss. Or, I mean, it's very, it's, it really is the, 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 the big, the big kahuna. Let me ask you a question since you're my guest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This feels what great you, being your guest too. I'm in a, I'm actually in a guest bedroom. Nice. So I'm very Wait, comfortable. <laughs> what? I said that's usually my room. I know. We've, we've upgraded our facility. So when you come visit again. I'm not going to be sleeping next to your sweaty, gross um, shirts that you don't wash. Because, you know, you can wear them one more time. I can just always wear them one just more time. Them. What's that? I can always wear them one more time. Just hang them on the, just hang them on the arm of the uh, treadmill. It's fine. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, we've moved the treadmill to another room. That's good for everybody. Yeah. Um, no, uh, do you? Let me ask you a, a question. Do you think that what do you think is more prestigious, an Olympic gold or a Kona World title? Because now Jan has both. I think they're equal. Interesting. Huh. I think they're equally as difficult. I think making it to the Olympics is insanely difficult. Right. Um, but I also think the amount, like you were saying, the amount of things that can go wrong while you're trying to do an Ironman. Mm-hmm is there's so many things that um, winning the world championships and that means you are literally the luckiest person on earth. <laughs> yeah, and it only happens once every four years. Yes, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think they're equal. I tried to, I thought about that a while back. I tried to think, which one's better? And I thought, man, they're, I think they're, um, they're equally difficult. Interesting. All right, I think that's, I think that's fair. I think that, I think your non-answer uh, and ducking my question will no, will no. suit you well for when you go on Hardball and um, the O'Reilly Factor right after this. Well, in, in reality, what you say the the real question is is how do you introduce Jan Ferdino and you say this is the gold medal Olympian and uh, <laughs> and Ironman World Champion. Yeah, no, it's true. That's it. Huh. All right, so let's talk about something you are up to this weekend, which is the reason why I took over your show. Weekend and a half. Right, a three-day weekend. <laughs> yeah. And a three-day weekend in which you didn't even take Monday off for uh, the holiday known as Columbus Day. I did. I had the day off from work. But you still took Friday off to start Iron Baby. Yes. Okay, so Ultra let's just be clear. You're, you, know, you took four days off. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes, Mr. Lawyer, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Let's explain to the people who don't aren't familiar with Ultraman. Okay, the original event. Let's give them a quick history lesson. What is Ultraman? What are the distances? And do you know its origins? Uh, I know it's a circumnavigation around the Big Island of Hawaii. Yes. And let's pull up their Wikipedia page real quick. Maybe it'll tell us what year it started. It's been around for quite a while. Well. Before that, why don't while I do that, why don't you tell them the distance? Because everybody loves dead time, dead air. Yeah, the distance is, is day one is a six point two mile swim or ten k. Yep. And it's then after that you do a ninety mile bike ride, and then you go to sleep. <laughs> you do. That's one of the weird things about the race, right? Is that it's a stage it's race. A, over three days that's one of the critical elements to it um and tell us about day two 
So then day two is a 170 or 172, I'll have to look, um, bike ride, 172 mile bike ride only, just a bike ride. And day three? And then day three is a double marathon. Ooh, that is outstanding. That so is just amazing. By the way, Ultraman, miles. Ultraman started in the 80s, 1983. Mm-hmm. It's, in 1984, uh, its winner was Scott Molina, the famous Scott Molina, who at mm-hmm. age 24 uh, finished up. Uh, it took him 24 hours and 49 minutes. Amazing, right, to, uh, that this race would be so old and have such a storied uh, history. They, uh, you also see some... Uh, some of my heroes, Peter Cotland, won it in 97. He's actually still racing as a pro uh, and, and in his 40s. Gordo Byrne won it in 2002. Also, uh, uh, a lot of times. No, he only won it once. He only won it once. Oh, yeah, he, he got stung by a stingray trying to defend, or a man ray or something trying to defend his title. Hilary <laughs> uh, Biscayet was third overall and won the women's in, the, in 2013. Yeah. Uh, also, it was dominated by all Americans um, in its early years. It wasn't until later that it wasn't until uh, '93 that it saw its first uh, German male winner, and there was only one non-American winner before that. And then it's been actually Americans have really struggled since then, getting back back into it. Um, and it seems to have a, a wide uh, seems to have a wide uh, appeal uh, worldwide. So the event. So tell me, what captured your imagination about this event? It's it's hard to say. Um, it's a mix of, um, you know, like when somebody mentions something to you a few times that it finally takes hold of you, like the first time they're like, um, you should really wear black socks. And you're like, yeah, that's great. And then another person says, Hey man, black socks are cool. (laughs) And then a third person goes, man, black socks are where it's at. I wear black socks. And then you go, man, maybe I should wear black socks. Uh (laughs) There's some kind of social phenomenon like that. But anyway, um, so not any one person, but uh, Rich Roll um, doing it and mentioning it so many times. And then uh, Jamie Patrick mm. um, mentioned that he had done it and actually uh, made friends with Rich Roll there. And then when Christine uh, – is it is it Christine Hirsch now? Oh, like, it is actually. So when Christine Hirsch <laughs> – <laughs> came down to Texas uh, for the 4th of July party that we went to, the hey party in, uh, <laughs> in a Texas subdivision where people apparently just water ski in their subdivision all over the place with <laughs> giant action figure arms because they're always water skiing and pulling on that rope. Uh-huh. Uh, somebody, I guess Christine found this guy uh, at the party at the house next door or something like that. It was that kind of party. And, yeah, yeah. And, uh, who uh, had just done Ultraman? Uh, oh, wow. Can- Canada, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so then I run into another guy that's done it, you know. And my own reaction to him was really kind of weird, you know. I was like, "Whoa, holy crap! You've done Ultraman? What was it like, you know?" And he right. said, "Oh, you know, it's really hard, but it's nothing crazy. It's just hard, you know. Oh, shucks, you know." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I was like, "Man, maybe I should." You know, it's just been in the back of my mind. And I've done um, plenty of Ironmans now. And I'm like, man, in the circles that we run in, Ironman uh, athletes, people that have done an Ironman are actually really common. Yeah. You know, so I wanted to try something different. Mm -hmm. And then once, uh, 
maybe a couple of years ago when I really started thinking about it, I was like, you know, how would I pull this off? And then um, after last year's Iron Baby that I yep. did, um, I was like, you know what? I really, I think I want to try to do an, an Ultraman inst- uh, instead of the uh, next one. And then once I started thinking about it and planning it out, it all, it seemed doable. Um, and well, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you next, yeah. let me jump in and, and ask you, tell me about physically and if so, and mentally, what prep or preparation went in, when did you start the preparation for as an athlete and as your own race organizer for this event? Um, okay. So physically I thought that I might be able to pull it off because, uh, when I do Ironmans, um, I'm not very sore the next day anymore. I used to be very, very sore, right? And, okay. or running, um, an ultra marathon, I'm not that sore the next day. And that's just from doing them for so many years. And I thought, well, that's handy because if you're doing a stage race, you don't want to be, it's, you know, you don't want to be so sore the next day. Right. And I thought, Hmm, maybe this is a sign that I'd be able to do it. And then, um, let's see, before I went too far, I asked off from work, right? Because I didn't want to plan too much stuff and then uh, not be able to do it, period. And I, I did some bouncing around of ideas of like actually going to Hawaii and doing it okay. or, or wherever. the Actually, I was thinking the Florida one. And then I thought um, you could train and train and train and then buy these airline tickets and then go and then something could happen. Um okay that ruins your race and you've spent a ton of money and it's huge entry fee and all this stuff. And I thought I'd rather, this is so difficult and so big. I'd rather try it on my own first to see if I could even do it before Mm -hmm. I sink a ton of money into doing one uh, where you got to pay to be in it to race against other people at the same time. Right. And then, um, I started, I got approval from work to take off the, the days they couldn't even understand what I was asking for. <laughs> and then, uh, then what was the next thing? Oh, I checked the A&M football schedule. I, um, you mentioned that somewhere in, in, in something that I was reading, and I was thinking to myself, that is brilliant. Um, yeah, it was kind of hard to do. Like, okay, so last weekend I did the Ultra Baby. This weekend is the a- Texas A&M versus Alabama football game here in this town. And the town literally doubles in size. because. Because they fit the entire town population, the normal population, into the football stadium of 110,000 people. Quick note to listeners, I actually am not an Alabama fan. I just think it's fun to yell world. I actually don't follow SEC football at all. Okay. <laughs> just want, I just heard my Twitter go like yeah. – on to hate. I wanted to make sure I cut that out real quick. Right. And, and uh, <laughs> the, the route, the bike route that I would be riding on is yeah. right okay. now packed with cars. Um, oh. and so, okay. So that was, that was, uh, step two. And then actually the final step was to actually start training. And then what I did to train was I started doing, um, I, I work a typical, you know, Monday through Friday, eight to five job. Um, and then, so what I did was on the weekends, I started doing back to back, um, big days. Right. And then Get evaluating down. what I would feel like on the next day, like, could I run, like go run uh, early tell Monday us, morning? Give us an example of one of those workouts. I think people love to hear exact workouts. Like, give me, give me like a typical late peaking for this event. One of your bigger weekends. What would that look like? Okay. So 
this would be a really good test to see if you could probably do a uh, Ultraman if you'd like it. Yep. <laughs> um, sun uh, Friday. This is if you have a regular job. Friday right. morning before work, go swim your ass off really freaking hard for an hour plus with lots of intervals and really okay. wear your arms out. Then uh, what I would do was then Friday evening get on the bike and bike pretty hard doing intervals for an hour and about an hour, right? That's all the time I really got. And then Saturday, so now you've worn out your arms a little bit and you're uh, actually like the whole week, just train, just train pretty hard the whole week. And then, uh, yeah, you start the weekend a little bit tired. And then Saturday I would, I got up to doing 90 miles on the bike and then, uh, which, yeah, you're talking many, many hours on the bike. Um, in the arrow position, just and riding hilly terrain as hilly as mm-hmm. you can, and but just out riding on the road and practicing fueling. Okay. And then um, Sunday, uh, biking again this that same distance, like ninety, uh, like four or five hours, right? Okay. And then maybe running Sunday night, but then um, Monday uh, Monday morning the next day. Uh-huh. Uh getting up, walking around and seeing how your legs feel. Do your legs uh, are they trashed, you know? Um mm-hmm. and then trying to go run on those legs uh before work. And how long would that run be on Monday morning? I'd only have like an hour, but you can tell like, you know, if you're tough enough, like if your legs are just completely destroyed. So, um what I did was I did much smaller. I started out at like 3 hours on the bike. Sure. And then did 3.15 and then 3.30 and then, you know, four hours and then four and a half. And what I did was the same bike route usually over and over again and would just add just a little bit more each time. Let, let me ask you a question. With the double marathon that finishes this, this puppy off on day three, mm-hmm. did you do any long runs or back-to-back long runs to get ready for that, for that third day? Um, not not so much because I did a little bit, but not so much because I think that that's mostly mental mm-hmm. and, um, and I've done, uh, you know, lots of ultra marathons before and I know not to, to, to start walk, to take walk breaks early mm-hmm. and that'll actually make you runner. I don't, and so it's an, it's the ego thing that'll, that'll do you in on that run sure. and the, um, so, and I don't have a problem with realizing I'm not the greatest runner in the world. <laughs> so start walking now. <laughs> right. And so when I did the ultra baby run, the actual real run, I, uh, started off right from the beginning for a uh, five minutes, run 30 seconds, walk five minutes, run 30 seconds, walk right from the beginning. Let's uh, not, uh, let's not jump to the end. Cause I do want to yeah. talk about the race in its entirety. Cause yeah. I think that it tells a story in the way that the fatigue builds, the psychology builds, the yeah. transcendental quality maybe of the race builds. So, so take me through, take me through the race. Give me, you know, the day it's, it's you and, uh, Brian are at the beach. You're ready to go. Where are you at mentally, physically? How are you feeling? Tell me how the first day goes. Yeah. Uh, so Brian came down the day before and, um, then we had to go out and mark the day one, uh, bike course. Okay. While we drove out to the lake, I want, and also we had to pick up the kayaks. So we had a lot of stuff to do the day before, Uh uh, which is not ideal. But also, I also wanted to make the race as much like 
as difficult as the Hawaii Ultraman as possible so that they were as equal as possible. So I'm like, if I was flying out to Hawaii, you know, to do this, I'd be all over the place too, right? And so I didn't try to get like so rested before this thing to actually make it artificial. So, you know, going and picking up the kayaks and marking the course was kind of like, yeah, that's probably a realistic amount of time on my feet, just kind of doing stuff. So um, check the lake temperature to see if it was, um, you know, wetsuit or not wetsuit legal or whatever and then um and then okay so the day of we woke up at like 4 four fifteen, drove out to the lake uh with emily and kai and um and brian and uh so kai wanted to see the start of it and then he had to go to school <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh emily took him back to the school and then um we started off and um the the lake is in is a uh, you know freshwater power plant lake. It's a lake that cools a power plant, and it's super safe. So uh, and that's a good thing because we only had one kayak support, right? And um, it was just really really pleasant. Except the visibility is about eight inches, maybe like six okay. inches or something. It's really terrible and uh, silty, and it's kind of a scary lake. And um, but there was no fog and we could just, we could see and Brian was in the kayak and then, um, uh, we started, r- I think right at seven fifteen. which I, oh, the other thing I'd done was I'd planned out, you know, when is, uh, sunrise officially, uh, all this planning going into this thing. Cause I, I was a racer and the race director because other nice. people were coming to do parts of it. Sure. And, um, so, and that's why I don't need to mark a race course, you know, but that's, <laughs> I know where I'm going, but this is for other people, right? And um, also, uh, Brian asked me the day before, uh, you know, what was my plan? And I said, um, honestly, this is so big and so scary to me. I have no plan except just to go easy. And then whatever happens, happens. Um, Because it really humbled me. Like, I have no idea what I'm getting into. Let me ask you, because I've known you a while, and I know, and we've talked before races, we've talked after races. You've raced with a lot of expectations. Um, some you've met, some you haven't met, you know, like all of us. But let me ask you, was was that freeing or liberating in any way? Yeah, what was freeing was um, there's a 12-hour time limit every day at the okay. Hawaii Ultraman. And I had calculated that my easy pace – um, would have me in, uh, in like nine, nine hours, you know, 10 hours. So I I had buffer time if I just go easy. And so what I did was I trained really hard so that I could go easy and I would be able to digest fuel and water and just pace myself. Right. And, um, so that was, that's, that's the best you can do. And that was uh, relaxing to know that, um, if I go easy, I should be able to finish. And also I needed to go easy the first two days because the third day was going to be for me really difficult because running's not my forte and, um, I might need the whole day <laughs> to finish the run, which I did. And, uh, so, um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah I, think I, I had, it was, it was crazy when Brian asked me my plan. I literally, my response was I started to have a response and then I go, you know what, man, I just don't fucking know. <laughs> i got no idea dude i this is too big this is literally too big and i'm not going to know until i start trying 
So we started off this conversation, you know, kind of loosely talking about my honeymoon and how um, you uh, embarrassed me by swinging across Lake Tahoe while all I did was sit on a beach and stare at it uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. in front of my new wife. Thanks. Yeah, sure. Uh, sure. I did explain to her that my manhood is cheap compared to yours, but that's cool. No big deal. Anyways, so you swam marathons uh, before, but so was 10K kind of, I mean, relatively pedestrian for you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So you came out of the water pretty much like, like, Pretty, pretty rested, still pretty comfortable. Well, um, sort of. What I did was I knew the swim wasn't going to be that bad, so I didn't train the swim that much because I needed to train my bike and run more. In fact, I needed to train the bike the most. Okay. And um, because my, my theory was if, I, if the bike didn't bother me, then I'd be able to run because you have a rest day. Yeah, I mean, you have a rest night, you know, after all right. the biking, to, you can run. So, um, so I kind of undertrained for the swim a little bit, um, mm-hmm. and it started to show at the end of the swim. My left shoulder started to hurt. Okay. Um, and was this a loop swim? Was it a what? Multi loop swim. Yeah, the lake is um, exactly two point four miles across and back, so it makes a great Ironman route. Yeah, that actually sounds perfect. Yeah, and um, but uh, so I had to swim across it and back, across it and back. And then almost all the way across it and back. <laughs> did you uh, did you positive split? Did you notice like your 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 later laps were significantly worse? No, I evenly split it. Brian, oh, uh, so was, you were having some shoulder pain. Yeah, Brian was uh was timing it and said, "Man, oh. you're just right on the dot." And uh, just um, I was doing the Ironman swim on an hour twelve race right. uh, per two point four miles, and that includes stopping every twenty minutes and drinking water and fuel. That's amazing. Um, and this was without a wetsuit. Yeah, no wetsuit. Just wearing jammers. No speed suit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because I wanted to keep it real because Ironman um, Hawaii has uh, currents, right? Right. And so this is technically easier, but they they get to wear wetsuits and it's salt water, right? So they're faster. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, this evens it out, right? Just Absolutely. don't don't overthink it. Just uh, you know, fresh water, which is slower can't see shit which is slower so anybody who's come out of a swim of an iron distance race right knows that there's that leg wobble right all Mm -hmm. the blood's in your upper body you've been horizontal now you're in second you're thrusting a vertical for those of people who watch the kona coverage there's a couple of prominent people just totally wipe out coming up the stairs at the end of the swim at digney beach going under the pier What's it like after three hours, 13 minutes, and three seconds of swimming? <laughs> Tell me about what your legs feel like. You, you know, you finally hit land. What's that like? Dude, because I wasn't pushing myself, it wasn't uh-huh. bad at all. And I was stopping every 20 minutes. I was for like 30 seconds or something. Then, so you uh, found your legs pretty quickly. Yeah. And then because when we were on the water uh, uh-huh. doing the swim, um, my bike was unprotected in a parking lot at a town lake where people could just right. take it and leave it, leave with it. Because remember, Emily took Kai back to school. Right, right. And Brian's sure. in the kayak. My bike was actually disassembled in my car. <laughs> so T1 for you. Actually, this is the only transition in the race. This is it, yeah. Because the other two days are standalone. It's all cycling and then all running. Yeah. So your transition, Tom, was it, it, it was, you had to assemble a bike. Yeah. I had to put my <laughs> wheels on my bike and... Um, put my stuff on my bike and I put on a full cycling kit um, uh, because I wanted to just pace myself and take my time anyway. 
Right. Yeah. And uh, tell me, so then you, you head out on the bike. Yeah. Oh, and T1, I guess this was T1, it took 20 minutes. Is that, um, and did you, that, and do you have any idea what the transition should usually take people in, in this event? I would say um, probably five to 10 minutes, probably. Yeah, it's not, it's not, you know, ITU style. No. Um, and then I guess my next, the only other, the next question I had is what we didn't talk about, right? You started at seven, it's now 11, past 11. What's, what's Texas like on that day? Um, that day was the, the tail end of a little bit of a, a Texas version of a little bit cooler of a day. Okay. Um, do I? Do you remember the temperatures and stuff to give people? Oh, I remember the temperatures towards the, it was highs in the, uh, highs in the mid nineties. Oh, wow. So part of the reason to wear a full kit, right? Is that you're, um, you're, you're, uh, for people who don't know, you're Scandinavian background. It looks like, (laughs) I mean, you got some Viking in you. So yeah. Our coolers, sunscreen. Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. So you need to, you need to throw on something with shoulder coverage, maybe even arm coolers. Yep. I did. Yeah. Definitely. All right. That makes sense. So tell yeah. me about um, tell me about the bike. So I thought that the bike loops would get boring uh, day one and day two. Uh huh. And it turns out they're not. Um, I spaced them out to uh, about twenty two miles, and then just back to the car. Right. So it's an out and back twenty two miles. Um, so just over an hour to get back to the car because I figure I could carry enough food and water for an hour. Sure. And then uh, without needing an aid station every 10 miles like they do in Ironman, right? And Ultraman, the real Ultraman, you're allowed to have a crew on in a you're supposed you have to have a crew in a vehicle. Man or whatever, yeah. And every intersection they can pull up ahead of you and give you what you want next, right? And so this was um, in a way more difficult. I'm not sure. You know, I guess it kind of depends. And then um, the uh, uh, so every hour plus I was back at the lake again after my out and back loop to um, pick up more food and water which you know a complete stop you know talking to Brian who was interviewing me on audio <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, picking up stuff telling everybody I was okay you know answering any questions if I was okay and then uh, heading back out again so uh, just out of curiosity day two a different bike loop or same or same yeah. Way. So day two for some more variety, I did a completely different bike loop because day one I wanted the bike loop to be as close to the uh, lake as possible, mm-hmm. uh, and we have a better bike loop, um, especially because day two's bike is going to be a hundred and seventy something miles. Right. Um, there was a better bike loop that was actually hillier um, to be more like Hawaii um, uh, that I wanted to use. So and tell me, before we get into day two, right? Mm-hmm. Day one is relative for you is relatively probably the easiest. It has a high, you know, a lot of swimming, and then it's a, a hundred and uh, no ninety mile, yeah, ninety mile bike ride, yeah, yeah, uh, bike ride, and then um, and then you're just like you're done. You're still feeling pretty good. What what did you do between at the end of day one before day two to kind of like put yourself back together? What were your recovery <laughs> strategies? Because a lot of people recover day to day, but here recovery isn't theoretical for some workout or for some race you might have in the future. This is like you're racing tomorrow. Yeah. So yeah. what I did was the the few days leading up before, um, mm-hmm. I started weighing myself um, to really get a good grip on what my weight was um, and you know how much fluctuations were. 
and then um and also preloading with a lot of salt and then also um day two um oh so when i finished when I, before i started day one i weighed myself when i finished day one weighed myself then i knew how much more i needed to keep drinking and eating to get my weight back up oh that's actually clever okay and i think that was critical i think because i've sure. had i learned that on my big training day weekends uh back to back was that if i didn't pay attention to my weight i would yeah bonk and blow up because I'd be dehydrated on the second day. Interesting. And um, if I did pay attention to my weight and tried to get it back to where it was before I started again, then, um, uh, and it takes overnight, you know, for you to absorb all that. So um, then I'd actually have a great day the next day. And so, yeah, there was, I, we had pizza, <laughs> um, a burger and fries because the fries have lots of carbs and starch and calories and salt. And then um, I'm trying to think whatever else, a uh, glass of wine, <laughs> but um, just uh, lots of food um, early as soon as I could when I was done and hydrating and lots of salt. And, um, and that seemed to make the next day just start off fantastic. And what did you have for breakfast? For breakfast, um, I would always mix in some eggs. And then uh, cereal and uh, but like a muesli cereal. Okay. Um, and then regular fat milk and I'm trying to think whatever uh, um, date bars and biscuits. You know, nothing too greasy, but right. stuff that was pretty high calorie on day one and day two because um, I, I'm not running those days, so I'm not that worried about. The GI, um, yeah, the GI issue on uh, on uh, those two days, so I could just load up because I'm just going to end up sitting on the bike. Well, day, you're going to be sitting on it for a while, right? Day yeah. two, 176 miles. Um, <laughs> you actually didn't really back off in terms of uh, miles per hour. You averaged almost 20 miles an hour. Yeah, <laughs> and, then, and you did over 4,000 feet of climbing. But it looks like um, actually, it looks like you burned nine. No, 5,000 calories? Yeah. I don't know how real that is. That's just an wow. estimation. I know. It's a pretty good one, actually. I would have so. I mean, that might even be low. Um, so tell me about day two. And, and, and let me ask you two questions. Tell me about you know, the, the riding itself, but tell me about where your head starts going, right? Like when does the fatigue set in? When do you start having some kind of interesting realizations? Because a lot of these kinds of ultra-endurance events, right, especially this one, it's totally self-supported, so it's not about the competition yeah. as much because, you know, it's competition is the course but it's it's got to be about a bit of like journey of self-discovery right i mean at this point you you're doing it in part because you're trying to find some sort of experience even if you don't know what that will be so talk to me about day two yeah uh, day two was actually my scariest day before doing it okay that, that was the day i was most afraid of because the farthest i think i've ever ridden is 112 miles on the bike so now we're going into uh, outer space. We don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> um, I was really happy because after day one, I felt fine. I, I felt fantastic. Um, I had a little bit of difficulty because of the heat at the end of day one on the bike, but then I recovered just fine and felt great. Sure. And uh, then, so day two, my whole plan was to just go as easy as I possibly could um, because I've never been there before. And, um, and to, and I'd gotten my weight up, you know, um, I had lots of salt, uh, and everything. 
and I was just going to, um, even at my easy pace, I knew that theoretically I should finish with some buffer. So there's no need to push it. And um, so just don't push it. Um, <laughs> and that ended up being uh, fantastic. So I finished day two um, feeling just like day one. Like uh, I felt fine. Um, right. And I'm, Did you have any dark spots along the way? Um, like a couple times, but it was just, uh, I figured out that it just, I was overfueling just the tiniest bit and just needed more water. And, um, overfueling. yeah, just because the heat, you know, overfueling is a relative thing. Sure. <laughs> you can only eat so much because you just, because of the heat and the, the effort. Um, and the hor- the course was just constant up and down, just, just constant rollers and uh, so I was able to coast the downhills and then, and then pedal up, coast, up, coast, up, coast, you know. And um, uh, that was eight and a half laps of the same loop, same 22-mile loop. And on, I wanted to go extra on the bike to make up for the elevation difference between there and Hawaii. <laughs> and I ended up doing so eight and a half in, miles extra on the bike total than Ultraman sure Hawaii. Just to kind of, you know, stick it to them? Well, I had <laughs> so, sort of, but I have huge I have huge respect for the for the Hawaii one. No, I know. I and I don't want to walk around saying that I did something and then the what I did was not the same and uh or easier, you know? And uh okay. so I was gonna make it pretty freaking difficult on myself. And, uh, because yeah, you know, the Hawaii one, the day one, they climb a freaking volcano on that bike. The finish line is like at the top of a volcano. (laughs) I have no volcanoes here in Texas. So like, I'm just, I'll just go farther, you know? Okay. So, so it takes you nine hours, 18 minutes, Uh but actually, so, so one of the things is even if you started early, right, you, uh, You've basically blown the whole day. So it was recovery hard at the end of day two? No. So what I did, day one recovery worked so well, did the exact same thing for day two. Oh, okay. Um, pizza, a burger, and fries, and salty chips, and salt water, salt water, salt water, glass of wine. And we had to go out and mark the course on foot <laughs> for day three on the run. Um, and, uh, wow. Yeah. How did you- Sleep between uh, at the end of day one, and how did you sleep at the end of day two? Was I slept up? great. Yeah, slept great. How much caffeine did you take in? Um, I did. Any full amount or no? Yeah, each day I did four tablespoons of uh, green matcha powder. Okay. Which uh, is not that much caffeine, actually. Uh, and um, be, uh, I love caffeine, but it also kind of drives my body like kind of crazy. Like it loves it so I, much. I, I think it would only be described as a Herculean amount of caffeine. Yeah. Uh, you know, a real brave amount of caffeine. And after meaning, you know, and I, I abuse it during or whatever, use it in increased amounts when I race. Um, and it makes sleeping the night of races really hard. Like right. I have trouble sleeping after an iron distance race or an ultra beast or sometimes even really big training days. And I think it's because of, for me, the elevation of caffeine intake. So you didn't have that problem. Yeah. So what I did was I, I tempered my caffeine intake a little bit so that I'd be able to sleep for the next day. Okay. That's actually really smart. I mean, was that intentional or did it just work out that way? It was intentional. Yeah. 
It's clever. What time did you get to bed both nights? Um, nine, nine thirty, I think. Nice. Okay. What time did you get up? Uh, four thirty. Nice. Okay. So, um, it's four thirty in the morning, day three, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And you start your fish rolling, assuming. Uh, just start what? What'd you say? You start eating. <laughs> so having breakfast, like you kind of start. Yeah, yeah. I got up. I can't remember exactly what I had for breakfast that morning, but it, it was you hungry. Yeah, I was hungry, but not terribly you, hungry. Um, okay. You didn't wake up like in the middle of the night to like throw down like a thousand calories of cereal or anything like that. Oh yeah, I did each night. Oh, <laughs> each night, I would hammer down uh, store bought uh, chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> like in the middle of the night. Yes. Yeah, that's a, you know, when we go to Spain, because people are training so much, but like, that sometimes happens to me. I just wake up at like two in the morning and I'm like ravenous. Yeah. Okay. And I would, okay. I would keep sure. by my bed, on my bed stand each night, a full bottle of water with salt in it as well. So salty water to rehydrate. And did you hammer that through the night too? Yeah, it was pretty much gone. Wake, would you wake up like thirsty in the middle of the night? Um, the just a few hours into the first night I did and I go, I'm gonna, I need to cure this problem. This is yeah. a bottle. I'm going to go make a bottle of water, salt water, and then keep it next to the bed. Uh, okay. So it's, it's four thirty day three. At this point, where's your head at? Okay. Um, I got up and I kind of walked I around. Yes. I, I should say too. Like how, how's the body feeling? Yeah. Um, and my legs felt pretty good and I was like, okay, they feel pretty good. I think, I, I think we, we got something here, and then uh, I was in a good mood, and I felt okay. Um, I'm really happy because um, the the previous two days, you know, I've done like nine hours, nine and a half hours, something like that, you know. And I'm like, I'm doing this. I think this is this is you know going to happen. And um, but I didn't. I wanted to. Oh, and then plus with just running, there's so much less to go wrong now. In the on the bike, I had almost an entire spare bike in parts, like in in the car. <laughs> so and you out of them uh, in case something broke. Right, right. But did did you have many mechanicals? I had anything? no mechanicals, no flat tires. Oh, that's nice. That's crazy, isn't it? And then uh, good luck. It's just good luck. And then um, uh, so on the way to the bike, driving to the bike start on on day two, Brian and I noticed that. Um, you could actually that there was people running and you could see at 7 a.m. Yeah. And the plan for day three was to start at 7:30 a.m. But the forecast was for mid to high 90s and winds out of the south, which are really humid. Right. And no cloud cover. And um, we decided on day two that we we're going to probably start day three at 7 a.m. to try to stay out of that heat if possible. Oh. Um. Because now we're on, you know, on the bike, you can kind of fake it because you got airflow over you because you're moving along. But on the run, full full sun on the run is just really bad, bad, oh. bad, bad idea. And oh. uh, so um, I started off running at 7 a.m. on the dot with uh, Emily and Kai chasing me down the street trying to catch up. <laughs> yeah and they kind of loitered around the the inside of the house for a little bit just accuse your wife and child of loitering Uh, yeah they're like yeah well well, yeah i don't think they believe me and then 
I said, uh, bye, going, like that. And then I got about halfway down my street, and I hear behind me, what do you want me to do with this water bottle? You know. And I said, put it on Kai. Kai was on his bicycle. Oh. And I said, hand it to Kai. He'll bring it up to me. I'm yelling back down the street. And I took off running. And it was nice. I also kind of wanted to start right on a round number, you know, 7 o'clock. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So you know it's easier to keep track of time that way. And right. uh, so then the first loop, uh, my heart rate on the – oh, and these loops are like six-mile loops. Um, my heart rate was a little bit high on the run, and that kind of scared me a little bit. It was in the one – around 130, you know, like artificially high. Is that going from going too hard or just cumulative fatigue that's caused cardiac drift? Uh, that – oh, that was cardiac drift. And, okay. um, and so that kind of scared me for a minute. I'm like, oh no, we're starting off like this, you know? And then, right. uh, but then it settled down after about 20 minutes to half an hour maybe. And then down into one twenties again. And I was like, okay, that's good. And then, um, and Kai did the first loop with me on his bike, which was so cool, you know? <laughs> and, um, and I posted a picture of that on Twitter and that's when I started doing the run walk, uh, right off the bat. Right. And, um, and with that, I was averaging just under an 11 minute mile. Um, and I managed an 11 minute mile, that exact same pace, like a metronome, you know, um, for, oh, for 30 miles <laughs> after all that biking and swimming, I managed to run 33 miles or 32 miles or something like that. I've looked at my graphs, you know, my speed and my heart rate and everything uh-huh. just like, like a laser just like that. And, you know, 20-something miles in, I remember commenting to Brian or something like that. And I said, this probably won't hold up. But if it does, this is fantastic, you know. <laughs> I said, I feel great. I feel I don't feel fantastic, you know. Um, but this is great. And uh, let's just keep putting the time in early while it's cooler before the heat comes. And how did um, – did you do any fueling strategy around that? Did you try to get some extra calories? get some extra water down anything uh, like that early hours i didn't try and i didn't not try and i think after the fact i with an even more appreciation for heat that i have now mm-hmm. than, than i had before um i think the little the the normal amount that i ate was still too much um, it ended up catching up with me uh, as the heat piled on i should have probably gone even leaner and relied on all the calories I ate the night before <laughs> for um, for a lot of my fuel, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Did you? Um, so when does it? When does when does it get real into the run? Yeah. So it got really real <laughs> um, around mile thirty-two or thirty-three. Emily, uh, it had gotten really sunny, and we had started uh, making sure that there was somebody with me on a bicycle with a bottle of ice water, right? Mm-hmm. And we'd done that for maybe an hour, and it was it was working. And um, But then Emily uh, stopped to put on sunscreen, and then she was going to catch up with me halfway through part of the – it was like a double loop. Okay. Halfway through the first loop. And John, man, seriously, the amount of water I was having to drink was out of this freaking world. Uh two liters an hour, you know, or more or something like that. I mean, it was crazy to keep the heat down and the, um, and I was, cause I was also pouring it over myself too at the same time. And, um, this guy that I was running with Brandon, uh, we happened 
to go faster than Emily had planned. And Emily got to the meeting point with a bottle of ice water um, too late. We had already passed it. And then she was waiting there for like 15, 20 minutes, half an hour or something like that for us to come by. And we never did because we'd already passed it. And that time was me time without ice water. And that brief, it was so hot and so it was just so brutal that that brief time without that ice water um, was the beginning of the of the end. Like that made me start to feel sick, you know. And I was like, holy crap, like just not having ice water for 30 minutes or 15 minutes or 10, I don't know, whatever it was, that was the, I was such on the bleeding edge of, of, of uh, getting worn out and that, that, that really showed, that pulled back a, a layer of paint right there. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh crap. And, and it, then, it makes you realize just, just on the knife's edge, this whole endeavor. Yeah, right? yeah, I was totally on the knife's edge, and I didn't realize it until that happened. And so when Emily caught back up with us again, I said, Emily, you've got to make sure I cannot be without ice water ever again for the rest of the day, no matter what. When they, like, when they do the actual event in Kona, right, you have your van basically leapfrogging you every half mile or mile or whatever it is, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah, and I was doing three miles uh, between aid stations. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's actually kind of – it's comparable, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, and yeah, Ultraman, Hawaii, all, all the Ultramans, you have a – you can yeah, you can have people with you on the bike. Like uh, while you run, they can just be running next to you. And, yeah, and I would think people utilize that kind of strategy because of the heat. When it gets that hot, it's almost impossible to – to do something like this. Yeah. And so I was like, let's do a bicyclist next to me with a water a bottle of ice water in the bottle cage and they can hand it to me at any time. And so, uh, that worked really good. So at this point, I mean, are you starting to have like, are you, are you reflecting on what this is about? Are you conscious of, um, of the experience or are you really focused on just getting, you know, one foot in front of the other, get it done. Where does, where does your head, you know, this is a really long event. Like, yeah. Where does your head go during something like so this? So day two is when I finally um, – is when it finally settled in when those multiple bike loops just on and on and on, you know. And you can, you can only go so hard because if you go any harder, you're not going to make it, right? So you have to have faith in that you're going that, – that, that what you're doing is going to work and you cannot try. Because if you try, you'll fail. You have to just be. <laughs> and um, there's this saying, I guess it's Jim Gorley or whatever his name is that wrote the book on Ultraman, wrote a book on Ultraman. Uh-huh. And he said that, you know, like uh, doing triathlons and, and up to Ironman is like flying a fighter jet. And it's neat because you can do barrel rolls and zoom all over the place and shoot at things. And he said, what if I told you I could take you out of that fighter jet and launch you into space? <laughs> <laughs> and that is Ultraman. And that's a day two on that bike ride is when I felt like I'd been launched into space. There's nothing to hold on to. There's no tricks. There's no um, anything that you try to go faster is actually going to make you go slower. <laughs> so you just have to completely let go. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. And I, I would just put my head down and just pedal. You know what I mean? And pedal as slow as I possibly could. And the more I did that, the more I realized I'd beat the 12-hour time limit. 
And did you, is this unlike any other experience you've had in endurance sports in that way? Or? Yeah, yeah, it totally was. Um, uh, com- completely having uh, no idea what I was getting into. And, John, the, the coolest thing is on purpose, like I was telling you, like when I was talking to Brian earlier, um, before the race, on purpose, not trying to know what I was getting into too much ahead of time. Right. Um, and letting the experience happen to me without any preconceived notion of what it was going to be like so that I wouldn't be judging, is it like what I thought it was going to be like? So then I was able to just let it be. And it was amazing. I, I thought I'd be bored out of my mind, you know, doing the, that long bike ride, for example. But I wasn't. I was, I was completely um, entranced the entire time. Like every second of it was just amazing. Absolutely amazing. And was there a struggle with your mind to get to that point? I mean, did you did your mind kind of fight that in the early, like you know, in the in day one or first part of day two? No, uh, uh, dude. Yeah, it's, for example, like with the swim. I mean, I started off that with that mindset right from the beginning. Just I'm just going to go easy and let it just let it happen to me, and instead of me happening to it. So you're now halfway through or three quarters of the way through day three. Yeah. And um, at some point, do you realize that this entire experiment, uh, you know, that you just described in terms of mental preparation and mental, um, and mental execution of a, of a, of a, of this type of game plan is, uh, or execution of this mental game plan is working. Yeah, is it's there, working. Tell me about the last, you know, half or third of the run. Okay. So that's when it got scary and we thought it might not work. <laughs> and what happens then because if you don't finish it doesn't matter what your cumulative time is if you don't finish each day in under 12 hours then you're out are you running out of time so when day three the run i started having to walk run instead of run walk okay and then i started feeling sick to my stomach and then after a while i had trouble walking because of the heat oof you know what I mean? Like my college wise when that starts happening instead, that was, that is really, really rare for, for me to be like, okay, I'm having trouble keeping up kind of a medium brisk pace walk. Like I can't even do that. You've done, you've done 50 milers. You've done a hundred mile running races, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that doesn't even, that didn't even happen next. Uh, I bonked on mile 92 of a hundred mile trail run one time and I had trouble, a lot of trouble walking that. <laughs> eight okay. Miles. So this is, would you say this is kind of similar or is this different? Yeah. This is where all of a sudden you start having trouble walking and oh, I had to DNF out of a hundred mile or two, mile 55. Um, right. and I did about 10 miles of just a zombie walk, right. And throwing uh-huh. up and stuff. And, um, when you realize you're having trouble walking, then yeah, there's that. nothing. There's nothing after that. There's, there's no nothing, down. Yeah, because sitting is zero miles per hour. Right is the way I put it. And I was worried that if I passed out, um, as it got really close to the end, I was starting to become worried. I was having trouble walking sl- very slowly in a straight line. I started kind of weaving a little bit with uh, about a mile to go, two miles to go. Oh, so you're close to the finish now. Finally, right? Oh. Um, as I started to have to, as I started having trouble walking with a few hours left, um, a couple hours left, 
we started doing calculations, right? Uh-huh. At this pace, because my watch was doing, um, I had my watch doing minute mile pace, you know, for the current lap, and the lap is a just a mile, right? And then um, on my watch, uh, would I still make it, right? So we had several people with uh, calculators out on their phones, <laughs> trying to figure out, you know, am I safe or am I not, right? And at one point, we realized that I would have to run a little bit more than I was walking currently. Oh, uh, wow. To um, make it under the, the time limit. And I was like, crap, because this sucks. <laughs> this is really going to hurt. And um, uh, so, oh, oh uh, a big thing was no cramps. I had no cramps the entire time. Um, and I was really scared of getting cramps, because that'll shut you down really quick. So um, we can talk about that in another podcast, my, my method for no cramps. But the um, uh, I started feeling... Yeah, I was sick to my stomach and having with uh, not. I realized that if I even with a slow walk with just like a couple miles left, right, that I was still going to come in at eleven thirty or something like that or eleven forty. Yeah, now you're against it. I mean, you're one. You're one right. cramp away. You're one vomitous se- session away. You're one tripping over. A, you know, yeah. a pothole away from being. You know, from blowing it. Yeah, and I'd gotten real quiet up until then. I was chatting, <laughs> you know. But now I'm having trouble seeing straight. Literally, I cannot see straight, and <laughs> I'm kind of wandering a little bit. And um, then, uh, what time was sunset? Like seven. Okay, so it's. I mean, because seven thirty. People don't realize Texas doesn't have like a real ebb, a real peak heat, and then it cools off. I mean, it's hot, and then it pretty much stays hot and even Overnight. more humid. The yeah. day goes off. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not like you got a really it's great like, break. It's because, like Vietnam. Because, <laughs> you know, it's 6 o'clock and the sun, you know, starting to yeah. set. Okay. And we had had, um, even though I forecasted, uh, I planned the, the event for, um, you know, early, middle October. Right. Uh, which would be a little bit cooler. Guess what we had? We had a late season heat wave. Surprise, surprise. So <laughs> it was unusually hot for Texas. <laughs> um which really okay, so sucks. It's still, it's still upper 80s, probably humid, middle, maybe even 90s. And you're, you're a mile to go, and you're literally. I mean, at this point, is yeah. there a? Now I'm really now at this point with just a mile to go. I'm actually now worried about passing out because, um, I'm I'm starting to fade. My vision's starting to kind of get tunnel vision and stuff, and um, I'm worried about passing out. I, my legs felt fine, right? It oh, was something else. It was the heat. It was like this oppressive blanket of heat that was doing right. me in. And um, yeah, I was I was able to keep moving my legs, but I worried that if I passed out, I would fall over. And yeah, I may wake up, but what if I hurt myself falling down or something like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I, it actually crossed the, my mind a few times. What do I do if I actually have to crawl to the freaking finish line? <laughs> right. Because this asphalt is rough and I'm like, it, it would really tear me up. And, uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, with half a mile to go, I, we start to turn across an intersection. And as I leave the curb, I start to feel like I'm going to throw up, which was new. And then 10 feet later, right in the middle of the intersection, I grab Emily by her shoulder and I go, I'm going to puke like that. And then I throw up in the middle of the intersection. And this other guy, EB, um, EB Ash is his name. He blocked traffic while I threw up in the middle of the street and I projectile vomited water Uh all over the place. So my fuel earlier in the day 
and the uh-huh. heat was keeping the water from getting to my body. Oh, because it was undigested. Yeah, and um, we weighed myself after the whole thing was over. I lost 10 pounds, 10.2 or something like that, uh, okay. pounds throughout the day, right? So I was dehydrated. Right. And um, then I walked over to the curb on the other side and leaned against this big rock, both hands against the rock and my head bent down, and I threw up more water. And then I stood up straight and kind of got my balance back and actually felt pretty good and then ran a 10 minute mile all the way to the finish line. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's so the problem was, uh, uh, water and, you know, in my stomach backing up and I guess putting pressure on me and then being dehydrated, uh, was starting to make me black out in the heat. And then once, once that pressure was gone from my stomach and I kind of cleared it out, I just felt way, way better. And I kind of wish that I'd thrown up, you know, hours before, three hours before, because I did the first marathon in 458, which is right. not bad considering everything else. And the sure. second one in like six and a half, I don't know, whatever it was. Yeah. 640 something, which is a lot of walking and, um, misery. And, uh, <laughs> but I finished with, uh, oh, dude, I only finished with 17 minutes to spare that and, is, well, yeah, um, it takes a long time. Yeah. Uh, although the whole time, like I was saying earlier, like the whole time, the, uh, it never felt long. I was never bored. I was never, I just kind of all, all the, the Zen Buddhist, whatever, like paying attention to the moment and just being in the moment stuff really paid off. It made it like learning to be able to do that made it just like happen, just be there while it was happening and just enjoy it, you know? And, um, it made it never, I mean, the only part that really sucked was the very end of that run, and I still managed to um, to uh, finish in time. So uh, up until then, I was having a really great time. And that, I mean, the heat wasn't really under my control. That was something that was otherworldly, you know? Like, oh, yeah. it was uh, not normal. <laughs> yeah. So you tell me about the kind of a recap i think the part you know the the science is fun the sport is fun mm-hmm. what um but what lessons did you take away having done something like this um one is uh train really hard and then go really easy on race day mm-hmm. and um it's all about pacing and hydration and fueling and the weight trick like weighing yourself to make sure you're not going in too lean uh or underhydrated and do a lot of race simulation stuff and, um, so that way you kind of know what you're doing and, um, uh, the, uh, the other thing was that was crazy was the runner's high never hit me until two days later <laughs> and just felt euphoric. Yeah. A total clinical freaking runner's high. You know, the, the, <laughs> what, the dopamine, what it's not dopamine. What is it? It's, um, I think it is actually dopamine. Dopamine. Um, okay. So yeah, maybe serotonin. So I'm, I'm, um, when I finished the thing here, I pretty much crashed and went to sleep. Right. And then I woke up the next day and I'm in my house and nothing's really changed. You know, I got the, we got crap scattered all over the place and I'm at the house by myself. Nothing's really changed. Right. And then, um, day two, Tuesday, um, I'm at work and the whole morning at work, same thing, right? It's the people that I'm used to being around uh-huh. and, um, they're asking me all about it and I'm telling them, you know, it's, it's freaking crazy and all this stuff. 
And then, um, but then at lunch, I went and ate at Freebirds. <laughs> and then uh, I walked over to kill some time on my lunch break over to Target. And I haven't been to Target in like, let's say two months or something like that. And I walk in the front door of Target and it's like, like walking into like a, a time warp. Or, okay. uh, you know, it's like, it's so out of my normal environment that it made, I think what happened was it made me reevaluate like anytime you walk through a doorway into a room full of different people, you kind of like ask yourself, who am I, you know? And, 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 uh, and so that you can deal with the new people that you're going to do and who are these people? Well, who am I, you know? And so I walked into target and I go, what is this place? And then I thought, well, what am I? And then I thought I've done an ultra man. (laughs) (laughs) Holy crap. I'm walking around the men's department of, of uh in the shoe department of target and the electronics department of target having done an ultraman you know and whoa weird man and then i got that whatever how why why that worked i don't know but it kicked off yeah the serotonin hit and i felt for about two hours or three Uh hours like my body was just made out like i was floating on a cloud and uh like i was on drugs (laughs) you know and that nothing mattered and it all made sense and where I was in the universe and everything was all wonderful. And I had nothing left to prove to anybody and I'd found peace and calmness and was totally like just body was just not even humming, but was just like numb, like just wow, nothing mattered because everything was cool. And, um, (laughs) But then I was able to, you know, people would ask, I was back at work, right? People asking me questions like, you know, what do we do with this uh, 12, six segment, 13 B formula report or something, you know? And I'm like, man, it's all good, dude. <laughs> do, you it's think, fine. do you think having had that experience that that's kind of now like this little reservoir of uh, inside of you that you can tap like if consciously if you need to get back there, you know, like you're, you know, you're stuck in bumper to bumper traffic and. You're, you know, you're late for something and you're grouchy. Do you think you can just say, tap that, like that experience, that moment and be like, we're there and say, wait a minute. And now that you have this perspective that's kind of life altering. I would love to. Um, um, I've heard that you practice it with certain things. And then after a while, once you get good at it, you're able to apply it to everything. Right. So uh, somebody that's meditating could practice it while sitting still, but then eventually they learn to do it in a meeting, you know, that they don't want to be at. Right. Um, and you can just be in the moment and, and, uh, and learn to um, make good out of the meeting. Um, I was listening to an interview Joe Rogan was doing with this uh, hunter guy. And I forgot the, the context of it exactly, but he was saying that he found – he used to try to do this kind of hunting or something like that. And then he found that he liked this other way or something like that. And then when he found this other way, it made him find this like inner peace and calmness that he didn't have to prove anything to anybody anymore the other way. Right. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of, that's a lot what it's like. Like, um, so I don't know if you, cause the, what I was trying to figure out is the, is the end point, you know, the end point is what I figured out is, is inner peace and calmness, right? We all have like this agitation inside that drives us to do stuff and, and, uh, being able to calm that water as you know, right? So there's no ripples in the water. So you can see the reflection of the moon or whatever. Right. 
um, it, that's actually the goal is to have calm waters. So how do you get to that calm water is, is I think me doing and, and a simulated Ultraman, you know, is found it for me. I don't know. Can you find, what would you do to do, to do that in traffic that you're stuck in? You know, you'd have to come to terms with it. You can't change the traffic. You no, know. but you can also just remember that experience, that feeling that you had in target and say, Oh, that's, you know, that, that's inside you. And it kind of, if once it's there, I feel like sometimes maybe it's always there. I, I've tried uh, bringing it back up since then. Uh-huh. And no, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but I think the more often you do it, the more self-confidence you have, like um, that you've reached that before and that it's always there if you have to. And, and, things- and that process, it sounds like it started with the, the lack of ability to create expectations for something that's so overwhelming. You know, you were, you were stuck in this very humbling position of not being able to control the future, not know the future and not even know if you could finish. Right. And I think that that, um, you know, that, that kind of experience started for you. It sounds like when you, you know, with that realization of your statement to uh, Brian on day one. Yeah. When I, right in the middle of me saying that to him, I realized that, that, wow, you know, this is a, this is a mindset that I've trained myself to, to, um, to be, uh, to use and, and it's happening now. And this is apparently, this is my strategy <laughs> because I tried preparing, you know, as much as I could. Um, I'm an, I'm a Eagle scout, right? So be prepared, you know? And so it's like, uh, I tried planning for almost every single contingency that you can come up with. And eventually with something this long, there's no more, you can't plan anymore. There's just stuff that's completely out of your control, you know? Um, who knows what's going to happen on the bike? And you could have a frame crack. Well, then what? You know? Yeah. Well, I have a spare bike. Well, what if that frame breaks? Well, then you're just screwed, you know? <laughs> Actually, isn't that what happened to, um, to Rich? Uh, Rich had a pedal break. So oh, I had I- spare pedals on the bike and pedal wrenches in the car. Spare pedals in, in, the, in the car. Um, and then... I told Brian, this is the plan. If my bike breaks so much that I need a whole other bike, there's another bike in the garage. I had spare wheels in the car, mm-hmm. um, all Did, aired up and ready to go. Now, I don't know if you want to kind of put this together in a final missive, but there's some other thoughts you had that we talked about uh, in terms of kind of like, you know, things that were analogous to, to Yoda, for example, <laughs> yeah. uh, being in space. Do you, want to, do you want to save that for a missive or can I ask you about it? Yeah, you can ask me about it, yeah. So I guess... My first question is, you know, you, you seem to stay mentally focused the whole day or the whole three days. And you didn't seem to have any real moments where you really cracked emotionally or, no. or, or, or gave up. And, you know, so tell me, what is that like in terms of in terms of how you approached it, what you, you know, kind of brought with you into this experience and on an emotional level and how you dealt with it? I think this is. What I'm getting at kind of is this is this concept of, you know, that 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 famous metaphor from Star from the uh, Empire Strikes Back. Right. So we're talking about there's a scene where Luke is training with Yoda and then Luke can sense that uh, there's this cave under this tree. He can sense that there's something under there. And Yoda says, yeah, the the dark force is strong in there. And then Yoda or uh, Luke says, well, I'm going to go check it out. And um, Yoda says, no, you probably shouldn't. Because <laughs> he knows that Luke's not ready yet, right? And then right. Luke says, "Well, I'm going to go check it out anyway. I need to go check it out." And then he picks up his lightsaber 
and he says Yoda says something like don't don't take that and then well then Luke says well what's in there and Yoda says well only what you bring with you and he's really talking some people say about the lightsaber do not bring your lightsaber in there and uh-huh. you won't have to deal with the lightsaber that's in there right and uh, so Luke goes into the tunnel and then he sees this um, interestingly I always thought it was his, it was your own fears yeah okay. but because of his fear right he's overreacting and bringing uh-huh. his lightsaber with him. So when he goes into the tunnel, he sees this apparition of Darth Vader with who draws a lightsaber and starts fighting him, right? And then Luke uh, hits Vader across the face, and the the mask cracks open, and Luke's face is inside Darth Vader's helmet, which is a whole lot of fore- foreshadowing, right? And uh, right. and that his actually the darkness and and the weapons and everything is Luke's own creation, and um, so. Uh, going into Ultra Baby <laughs> is uh, I like it when I finished. I go, I'm an Ultra Baby man. <laughs> oh, uh, the uh, going into Ultra Baby with too many fears and and too many weapons would be my own undoing, right? Yeah. So I was going to be prepared, but then also at some point you have to let go, and um, and by letting go. Uh, you actually really get to enjoy it, right? If I had, if I had, there's no way to forecast everything that's going to happen. And if I have in my mind the way it's supposed to happen, well, when things don't happen, because there's no way things are going to happen exactly the way you think, well, then I'll be frustrated, right? Because it's not happening the way I wanted or the way I planned. So I'll be constantly contrasting. Well, I expected this, but I, but I got that, right? I expected this, but I got that. So if I have no expectations, then there's no negatives to be frustrated with. And uh, there's no lightsabers in my tunnel. <laughs> and so, and, uh, and, the, um, and another thing I thought, I, I've carried this, with my whole, carried this with me my whole life. When I was a kid and I was learning to swim, um, if I couldn't touch bottom, I would go to the edge and hold on to the, the side right. and cruise along the pool by holding on to the side, you know? Okay. And I have an older brother who would just yell at me, you idiot. Come on, you know, which they're always helpful. And then, um, and then at some point, and I don't remember when, but at some point you have to let go, you know? And, but then when you let go, you have nothing to hold on to, but you're never going to be a swimmer unless you finally let go of the wall, you know? And so, yeah, well, my experience was, you know, um, I, I would probably say my very first ever Ironman was like this, right? Where at some point you got to quit planning and you got to just let go, and we're just going to go and see what happens. And um, for people that uh, want to try it, the the it's the weirdest feeling. You're you're Iron Man or half Iron Man or you know fifty mile run or hundred mile run or Ultra Man, whatever whatever you want to do that's bigger than you can comprehend because you've never done one. Um, the coolest feeling is letting go and then. So let's say now you're in space, like like I was saying earlier, or you're swimming. There's nothing to push against, right? And so you're in free fall, and there's uh, nothing to except for you. It's all you now to to answer the questions and do what you're supposed to do. And it's a really bizarre feeling that I could see people getting addicted to, you know, or maybe not addicted, but just enjoying that feeling. And so I guess my question is, yeah. and you kind of answered it. This is it took you to get into 
or maybe it was the stepping up because it happened first the first time you did Iron Man and then it happened again now that this is your first Ultraman attempt. But it took you getting it took you to that point to realize that this is applicable, I think, to every endurance sport, whether you're doing a mm-hmm. 5K, a 10K, an Iron Distance, an Ultra Distance, an Ultra Baby, an Ultraman, you know, on, you know, crossing the moon. I mean, it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like that process needs to necessarily only be for things that are incomprehensible. Yeah, I, I started I started noticing it when I was um, doing the longer bike rides, and each one was a little bit longer than the one before. And then I started enjoying. I quit worrying. I I realized I'd have a better time if I quit worrying if, what it was going to be like if I went a half hour longer, an hour longer. And I said, I'll just bring my fuel and my water, and I'll just see what happens. And I quit judging ahead of time and trying to be over prepared. Um, and I think that's what kicked me off into this was like, wow, um, it ended up being okay, you know, and I learned something. And then, so you, you go into the void, um, uh, without too many expectations. And then when you come back, you kind of like try to figure out what happened. Right. And then go, okay, so it was probably because I needed more water and I was underweight or too much caffeine or not enough caffeine or not enough fuel, or maybe this fuel is not good for me and then try it again. Right. And then go, ah, cool. Now go a little bit farther. <laughs> and that's, I, yeah, I think the, the long bike rides actually were the, were the starting point for that. And, um, next question is, do you think that uh, gluten free wedding cupcakes played a major role in with candy corn on top, <laughs> a major role in your fueling? Yeah, I actually enjoyed some candy corn going into the uh, training or at, at different stages of my training. And, <laughs> For and, those people who don't know, I'm referring to my own wedding that Brett was at. Yeah, and like, candy corn is fantastic. <laughs> After we're at like late, right before the kind of the thing ended, um, somebody picked all the candy corn off. Oh. And ate it. It was pretty insane. <laughs> and ate it. <laughs> <laughs> and ate it. I, I actually, I, yeah, I, I saw the perpetrator. Kai, we were we were staying in a hotel uh, for people that don't know that um, is or is not haunted, but is pur- uh, purported to be uh, majorly haunted. One of yeah, the one literally. of Massachusetts most haunted places. Salem, Massachusetts. For those of those of you, yeah, right in the heart of Salem, right? Yeah, we're talking like witches. We're right on the we're right on the green where witches were like you know hung and smashed yeah. and. Yeah. 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 And Kai said, you need to know this. Kai said in the middle of the night, he heard somebody walk up to the bed and, and uh, grab his foot. Yeah. That's what lots of guests report that. Yeah. Yeah. And that was it's, it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so awesome. Isn't that cool? It's so cool. We I walked love- around the hotel trying to see uh, the rooms, you know, that were supposed to be haunted. And I kept hiding behind doorways and stuff and jumping out <laughs> trying to scare Kai and Emily. Oh, dude, I love it. I love everything about Salem. I love the Witch Museum. I love, I love that. You also missed the one workout uh, we had during the actual reception, which was the yeah. Super Blood Moon uh, swim. Oh, at the apex of the at the apex of the Super Blood Moon. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Was that actually a workout? No, it was no. just okay. us goofing off. I'm yeah. being facetious. <laughs> uh, we didn't actually do a real workout. You, you try geek. Are you on? <laughs> Can't we just do something? Can we go swimming normally once a year? <laughs> Without some kind of Garmin or like pace clock? Seriously. Uh, <laughs> your form in your wedding dress is terrible. Your shoulders are totally not high enough. Yeah. I have uh, never uh, seen more fit people at a wedding than at yours. It was incredible. Yeah. 
we had the double uh, we had the double cyclocross racers, um, and you know, obviously, all the triathletes. It was pretty pretty comical. Yeah, um, I loved it. Awesome, man, anything you want to talk about about uh, about Ultra Baby before I give you your show back? No, I think uh, this was awesome, man, and uh, <laughs> I really appreciate you uh, interviewing me and uh, about it. I what what I want to tell people. Um, there's so many reasons why I did it that I could never tell you one exact reason. You know, okay. Um, I wanted to be in this, this elite club of, of people that have done one, but I, I don't have the money, you know, I would feel guilty using Kai's, um, college tuition to go do this. Right. And, um, the entry fee and the travel is just astronomical. And yep, uh, so I decided to do it myself and I tried to make it as difficult as the real one. And I definitely think I succeeded comparing all the numbers and stuff. I think it was on par for sure. And the, um, uh, what, you know, people say, well, are you going to do another one? I have no idea. You know, uh-huh. um, I don't know if I, it, you, you would do another one if you felt like you needed to do another one. You know, mm-hmm. um, I don't feel like I'm fast enough to race one against other people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am up to, uh, up until that run, you know, and then I, my run would have to be better than it is to, um, really be racing for, um, some kind of title. And I don't know if I'd want to race it. I just really enjoyed it. And the, again, the fact, when I look back on it, when it hit me that I actually enjoyed the entire thing, except for one small part, um, just because of the heat, um, that blew my mind. I thought I'd be bored like crazy, and I wasn't at all, never, the entire way. So that was pretty neat. That's, uh, that's amazing. I think, I think you're, uh, you know, I was totally captivated by the idea of you doing it, and I wanted, um, I wanted to be in on it. So sitting here on my off season, taking a little downtime, I was super excited to get to steal your show from you. (laughs) And for anybody who doesn't uh, appreciate podcasts, let me tell you, just preparing for this was an enormous amount of work. I cannot imagine, like I have a whole new respect for, you know, podcasters and how much effort it takes. And I'm actually going to bail out on the hard part, which is the editing and the stuff like that. So, you know, Thanks for giving me a chance to finally interview somebody as a to play podcast host for a day. I've always wanted to do it, and this was super fun. Yeah, I hope I was. You know, hope I was all right. If I had a podcast, this is the first interview I'd want to do. I think this is totally, totally surreal and sublime, doing something this crazy. So, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, awesome. Uh, any, uh, any, uh, anything else? Any shout outs or anything we need to get to? Or uh, no, man, I'll wrap it up after. Sounds I'll tack good. it on at the end of the interview. That sounds awesome. Congratulations on a fantastic Ultra Baby. You're the Ultra Baby world champ. I am. I was uh, first place, uh, last place, and middle place all at the same time. Well, as long as you weren't DNF, it's the only thing that matters. And it sounds like you had an amazing experience along the way. So congrats to you. And uh, I hope our paths uh, cross virtually or in person sooner rather than later. It was great to see you. Oh, I'm sure they will. Awesome. Congrats. Bye. All right. All right. Thank you so much, John. We're going to have more about the Ultra Baby where I cover in detail exactly what I did, uh, not in, in, a, in a boring way, but in a way that actually you can use a lot of it yourself. And if you want to do something big like that. And also, um, when I was talking with John and I said, because um, he was asking, why did I want to do it? And I was saying, well, there was like, you know, it takes like three times for you to hear something before you really want to do it. And I remember the third person. So it was Rich Roll first uh and then i bumped into jamie patrick and then this guy at a party uh but the i think the 
the the thing, the capstone to it all that drove the nail in was meeting uh, Hillary Biscay, who won a year ago the uh, women's division, almost won the whole thing against all the guys. Met her in person, interviewed her, and she's on an episode about, uh, yeah, about a year ago. Uh, you can go check that out. And I uh, was following her and got really excited about it. And I think that was the one where I said, man, I got to do this. This is way too crazy to not uh, take part in in some way. Anyway, let's see. I wanted to mention uh, Dana Hendry was the lady that did um, most of the Ultra Baby with me. She was pretty amazing. And also her husband, Ed, who's a huge fan of the show. Uh, Brian Brode, who was my support crew, my number one guy the entire time, who is amazing. And also, uh, I, I owe him a lot. I think without him, I, I don't know if I would have been able to do it. Him, he and uh, Emily were so critical to this. Uh, Shannon did a bunch of it. Uh, she's Kai's, uh, f- uh, Kai's uh, friend's mom. They're on a little triathlon team together. EB and Tracy Ash, who also I went on a, a bar hopping bike ride with the other night. It was pretty funny. And then, of course, Emily and Kai. And uh, every year I go into this big story about how I do the I do the Ironman, self-supported Ironman, and now self-supported Ultraman. Uh, I do it in... Uh, in respect, not memory of, because Kai's still with us, but in memory of Kai's ordeal where he was born premature and I was supposed to do an Ironman and then I couldn't. So I just felt so frustrated after a few weeks and went and did one on my own to show that if somebody would let me do something while Kai's in the hospital, because all they do is just let you wash your hands and then go look at the baby in the incubator. And uh, everybody's working so hard around me, uh, Emily, the uh, nurses, and they're like, you just... Don't lose your job so you can keep paying for insurance. <laughs> That's what you need to do. And I got so frustrated with, uh, I wanted to show how much I would try if somebody would give me something to do. So I went out and did a self-supported Ironman all by myself. And I live blogged it on Blogspot with a uh, with a sidekick phone as I was doing it. And uh, after year one, then year two. And then year three, it got to be a fun idea. And then more and more people started doing it. And it's just a thing. That's all I got to do. Uh, that's all the only way I can explain it. It's amazing. And um, the amount of people we've inspired and the amount of money we've uh, raised for uh, March of Dimes, which helps uh, little kids that are born preemie and, and children's hospitals as well, it's just uh, amazing. And it's super cool. Um, and that reminds me, uh, Brandon, one of the guys that ran with me, uh, he donated to... Um, to March of Dimes, and we uh, matched it and put some money in there too. That was really cool. Um, so yeah, next show we'll cover te- te- uh, cover technical details, and then also I was kind of pissed off when I finished the run on Sunday and didn't run better uh, because of the heat. I thought um, because. Yeah, it was just, I was like, man, I could have done better than this. I barely came in under the wire when I felt like I was uh, I was cut short. I had the rug pulled out from under me because the heat was so unbelievable. And also the run course had twice the elevation gain of, uh, of, of uh, supposedly, uh, of um, Ironman Hawaii. I didn't feel like it was all that hilly, but apparently it was a freaking hard run course, you know, uh, Ultraman Hawaii. And then, uh, so the next day I actually felt, my legs felt kind of good. So I went out and ran 
<laughs> on Monday morning, because my dog was sitting there looking at me like, you did all this stuff and you didn't take me. So I felt guilty. So I leashed up Kona, if that's a thing. And uh, we went for a run and I ran a 5K, well, 3.2 miles with Kona. It's on my uh, Strava, and you can go see it. I ran under a 10-minute mile for three miles the day, the morning after doing an Ultraman on no painkillers. <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, dude, that was the heat because my legs are still working, and I feel pretty good. And uh, that that was the the nail in the coffin for me, like, man, I have really achieved something to go out and do it, to do an Ultraman and then run a 5k the next morning, uh, was pretty cool, pretty cool feeling. So I'm real proud of that. And I think that's it. So, uh, those are the fine points. We'll get into more of that kind of stuff, uh, next episode. And also, we may have Jesse Stenzel on pretty soon here. Let's see. We have donations. Uh, JD said, hey, man, thanks for the quick turnaround. I blew through that last order. Oh, we're talking about Hornet Juice. I'll mention Hornet Juice at the end. Let's uh, wear in a way it works. I think I'm going to need a 12-step program to get off of it. <laughs> I guess I should start listening when you say something, quote, unquote, really works. Yes. Uh, I am a Boy Scout. I'm an Eagle Scout. And uh, I don't lie. Or I try not to lie on purpose. And uh, if I... I have a lot of uh, morals beaten into me, and uh, so I try not to uh, to make stuff up. If I say something really works, that's because I've tried it, and it really works. Anyway, uh, he says, thanks for the years of motivation, tips, and company through the uh, long workouts. You really have made a difference in a lot of people's lives. Hey, that's really nice. Uh, one thing, eating, drinking, burping, anything you feel like doing, just do it, man. He's talking about recording on the podcast. Um, it's a podcast for triathletes and every second of the day counts. Far as I'm concerned, it makes it like we are there hanging with you. Okay. That's it. Bang. Exclamation point. He wrote, um, yeah, sometimes I get criticism for drinking and, uh, burping on the, uh, uh, not really burping, just drinking, eating, drinking and eating on the uh, podcast. Hold on. And I'm like, well, it's pretty authentic because I'm trying to record a podcast while training for Ironmans. So I don't have time to like get in the, get in the studio and record perfectly, you know, with, and edit all this stuff out. No, we're doing real life triathlon training mixed in with working a full-time job and being a parent. So you're going to get me drinking like this. And that wasn't staged. I just happened to have a drink next to me. Okay, the um, oh Joseph Rogalski sent in a donation. Uh, M Web sent in a donation. Um, Simon Wright, who's kind of a big deal, said um, he wants me to talk about. Uh, he has an Ambit that he wants to give away because he got a Garmin 920. He's got a Sunto Ambit three or something like that, and that's a really nice watch. And uh, he wants me to talk about the 920. I'll have to do that in a future episode because I use a Garmin 920. But I can tell you one thing for sure. You need a watch that does everything that you want. And then what, what's funny is you end up only using a few things on it. But if it doesn't have that few things, you're kind of screwed, right? So the things I end up using the most are vibrate and beep alerts, um, power on the bike. Um, I use it as a backup bike com- computer in case my bike computer doesn't work. Uh, I use it as a run watch. I use it as a swim for swimming. I just swim by effort and time and I mix in intervals by effort. I don't, it measures total distance, but I don't do, um, 
uh, I don't do intervals, uh, you know, I don't do like six 300s on a 150, whatever. No, I'll swim five minutes easy, four minutes uh, hard. Uh, two minutes easy, eight minutes hard. Uh, six minutes bilateral, uh, five minutes pool boy, right? I just swim by time, and if you're not exactly at the wall whenever you finish, you just kind of round it up or down and just don't think about it too much. So, um, and I do that on the bike, and I do that on the run. And that's the way I coach, and people love it. It is very zen. It is very simple, um, because in the end, because I grew up on swim teams with all that other stuff. In the end, that is what makes the difference. It's easy and then hard, and easy and hard, and it's by minutes, and uh, because everybody's different, and your time's going to vary based on where you are, and um, you know, like if it's where it's hilly or whatever, it ends up being time. So, uh, what you'll find out is you'll get something like a Garmin 920 or a Sunto Ambit 3, and it'll do all this amazing stuff, but you'll find that you keep trimming it down and trimming it down and trimming it down, and eventually you use the stuff that you use and you don't use anything else. And then you're like, why do I have $400 of stuff that I don't need? It's like, well, that's so that you can get the whole package so that you can pick the little things that you do need. And... There was uh, something else about it I'll remember in a second. Anyway, uh, Ken Soderquist sent in a donation. and Thanks a lot, man. Daniel Stark and Mark Mills, and he has an email. He just uh, ordered his third order of Hornet juice, just like you said, <laughs> where people order like one or two, and then they order 30 um, because they're like, they test it, you know, and then they go, holy crap, this really works. I used it during a 31-mile training run. You're nuts uh, this last weekend, and it was awesome, period, exclamation point. Uh, I had a 50K PR on a training run from using Hornet Juice. So y'all hang tight. We'll get to Hornet, how to get Hornet Juice in a minute. Um, I have a 50-mile race next month. I ran the same race last year and pre-mixed Hornet Juice in the bottles in my drop bags, which worked fine. This year, I'm thinking about putting in my 20-ounce bottle diluted diluted and drinking it as I run. Have you had experience with taking it in slowly? Yes, I have. Uh, still one packet per 90 minutes as it recommend versus drinking it all at once every 90 minutes. Yeah. Um, I don't think it actually makes a difference except if you drink a whole lot of protein, it's not a whole lot, but it is an amino acid, which is protein. Um, at once, of course, you know, that's going to be a little bit harder on your stomach. So you ought to spread it out. And I like to, um, anything that I can break into pieces, I like to break it into pieces uh, because I've learned some pretty hard lessons by having stuff mixed in with my water and then you can't drink your water without drinking that stuff and you're sick to your stomach because you've already drank too much stuff and so now you just want water and now you can't because all you've got is fuel or protein powder or whatever mixed in. So I like keeping things separate until I need them. Uh, And... Yeah, so as much as you can, keep things separate until you need them. Uh, one exception would be apparently water will stick with you a whole lot better if you have a little bit of something mixed in with it, like uh, a little bit of carbs and salt mixed in with it. Uh, okay, so then a donation by... Oh, I remembered the thing about the, um, the Garmin now. Uh, as I train, I have auto-pause turned on uh, for pretty much everything. And then as I get uh, closer to a race, it's race week, I turn all the auto-pause stuff off. Uh, Because in a race, you know, if you stop at an aid station to stretch out a leg or something like that, um, 
you, uh, you know, it'll stop the time if you have auto pause turned on. So turn that all back off and then you'll get straight time. Mm. And I got to remember next episode, I'm going to talk about how I didn't get any cramps at all during the ultra baby and how I pulled that miracle off <laughs> that wizardry. It worked. I had a, I had a, I had a plan and it worked. Okay. Um, a method, uh, Richard Trago. I'm trying to cr- pronounce that correctly. Uh, Dwayne Morin sent in a donation and Richard, uh, Houston Marsh, uh, Tyler Moyer, Peter Salzen. These are all man, longtime donors. Thank you all so much. Uh, James Godak, Spiros Fetsis, uh, go visit him in the Chicago area in Libertyville. If you're up there at his shop, um, Jill sent in, Oh, this is Jill from Israel. Um, she sent in an email and said, hi, Brett, unbelievable. I did Ironman Barcelona on Sunday and came in first in my age group and took the Kona slot for next year. How cool is that? Had to let you know, good luck this weekend with the ultra baby exclamation point. Aloha, Jill. She's already, she's already in the Aloha spirit. And she wrote out the word exclamation point. If you send me an email or a note and it has exclamation points in it, I read them out loud. Uh, that's really awesome, Jill. And Nathaniel Lebec, Il Senor, Sonur, a longtime donor. Sam Pearson, Michael Redogna, Brett Hoyer has the coolest first name in uh, triathlon. Simon, we already mentioned Simon. And Connor Sanders and Hun Chu. All supporters. Hun Chu's got a race this weekend. And I coach him, so he will kick butt. <clears throat> and, yeah, let's uh, wrap up with a couple mentions of uh, sponsors that I might have uh, left until the end here. We have Chris Haig Racing. Chris Haig, H-A-G-U-E. You need to Google and find him, Chris Haig Racing. And he is an awesome triathlete who also does coaching super nice uh, super smart smart as a whip and can get you set up and kicking ass and he used to uh, run in college so he can uh, get you a nice little running training plan going and uh, I've trained with him and he has run me into the ground in at least one race so I highly recommend him (laughs) he is a cool dude Chris Haig Racing. Lives out on the West Coast and was originally from the East Coast. So, you know, he knows his stuff. And also, let's, I guess we should mention um, Hornet Juice. No, let's mention Amrita Bars. Amrita Bars, man, while uh, we were doing the Ultra Baby, uh, Brian Brode said, Hey, you got any of those Amrita Bars? I go, Yep, I got a box of them. And my current favorite is Mango, is it Mango Coconut? Is that the flavor? It's mango something. I don't have any with me right this second. Holy crap, man. They're freaking good. They are amazing. And uh, Amrita keeps sending me boxes of Amrita bars at the exact moment when I'm running out of my last one. And they uh, are so easy to digest. I had half of one this morning and went out for a seven-mile run. Uh, No problems. Cup of coffee and an Amrita bar. Half an Amrita bar. And the other half when I finished. And um, they're super smooth on the stomach. They're organic. They're super healthy. And uh, just like I mentioned with somebody else earlier, it was started to help a, a child, a son, that had uh, food allergies and uh, got him 
uh, feeling a whole lot better. And yeah, Amrita bars are the real deal. And I really like them because they're just the slightest bit chewy. So they're really easy to handle. And the wrappers are made, uh, Arshad owns the company and he's a cyclist. And they're made so that um, they're, the wrappers and the uh, bars are actually pretty easy to handle on the bike, um, you know, with one hand. And uh, to eat just a, like a third or a quarter or half of a bar and chew on it for a while without choking on it. You ever try to eat crackers or something like that on the bike and then you breathe in and then the back of your mouth gets filled with cracker dust and then you start convulsing and coughing all over the place? Amrita bars don't do that. <laughs> they're really good and they're really easy to handle. And you can get 15% off Amrita bars with discount code ZEN. And you can get to them at amritahealthfoods.com. And Amrita is spelled A-M-R-I-T-A. And, of course, we should give a shout-out to Hornet Juice. Hornet Juice is an amino acid powder that is synthetic Japanese killer hornet saliva. No joke. And it actually works. You hear all these emails that I get from people that they order, like, the smallest that you can order. Like a 5-pack or a 10-pack. I think it's a 10-pack is the smallest you can get. And then they come back and order 50. (laughs) And I'm like, this is amazing. And uh, so all it is is an amino acid blend that activates your fat burning. And you take one packet for uh, every 90 minutes during long workouts. I guess you do it short workouts. You you can do whatever you want. But um, I used it during all three days of the Ultra Baby. So I did a self-supported Ultraman with Hornet Juice and felt fantastic and had tons of energy, and uh, I had no other like protein blends or anything like that, just Hornet juice. And what's super cool is when you get it, um, it comes from New Zealand, you get a personal email from me, so now you have my email address, you can email me with uh, quick questions, I'd be happy to answer them for you. And then you got something to show your friends, you're like, look at this cracked out, crazy ass stuff coming from New Zealand that uh, is made from in a lab and off of Japanese killer hornets and uh, then go to Google and go to YouTube and Google uh, Japanese killer hornet videos for a while and watch those crazy things and how insane they are and then you realize uh, what you're getting into (laughs) and the amount of energy you're going to have. So what it does is it, it turns on your fat burning so that you have more energy without having to eat as much sugar and get sick to your stomach. It's pretty cool. And I've been using it for years and years and years and years. And so have so many other people. It's really good stuff. And if you get Hornet Juice, then you're helping yourself. And you're also getting something to show off to your friends. And then also uh, you are helping support Zentri. Because a little bit of what goes towards Hornet Juice, they send back to me. Which is super cool. All right, that's it for this episode. I hope I haven't forgotten anything. If I have, I'll mention it next show. And also, we'll cover part two of the Ultra Baby. We have race audio that Brian recorded as I'm going through it, like between loops on the bike and like after the swim and all this other stuff. Um, and a whole bunch of tips and tricks of how I trained specifically to um, survive this thing uh, well. And, uh, yeah, and it's stuff, I'll read it off in a way that you can use it for whatever you're doing and, um, you can, uh, pocket it and put it in the back of your mind and maybe it'll inspire you or solve some of the problems that are bugging you about doing something, uh, crazy, fun, and long. All right. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. Love y'all for tuning in. It was really an amazing experience and we got more coming up. Stay safe out there. Work the uphills cruise the downhills and keep the rubber side 
down, out, 